0: Welcome back to The Thing with Feathers. I am here today with Dr. Tim O'Connell, Associate Professor at the Department of Natural Resource Ecology and Management at Oklahoma State University. He also calls himself a 1950s dad parody who dispenses advice, birding and otherwise on Twitter.
2: (laughs) Unsolicited, (laughs) often.
0: That's the best kind, isn't it? Absolutely. Everyone likes. I,
2: I think so. I unsolicited
0: think so. advice, yeah. Tim. Thank you for being with us today. Oh, it's my
2: pleasure. Yeah, I'm delighted to be a part of it.
0: So, do you have any dad bird crossover jokes?
2: Uh, well, I'll I'll work on that while we're talking. How's that? Okay, you can just That's weave that. it in. Yeah, yeah, but but no, not at the moment.
0: There it has to be some sort of joke to be made about creepers. There's got to be some bird creeper. Jo- I've been working on it. I got nothing so far.
2: Okay. Well, I'll think about that.
0: Okay. So you work in natural resource ecology and your primary interest is ornithology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tell, Tell us about that.
2: Uh, Sure. So, um, you know, when people go to college to study, say, wildlife, you know, and there are a lot of people who are interested in biology, but what they're really interested is like wildlife management. You could be in departments called all sorts of different things. So sometimes you're in a wildlife and fisheries department. Sometimes you're in ecology and evolutionary biology department or something like that. Uh, Our department has natural resources in the name and it's natural resource ecology and management. And that means we're the people who sort of study the way the natural World works, but also from a very applied perspective, how can we manipulate that to get the things we want from the natural world? And from a sort of consumptive uh, viewpoint, like forestry is a part of what we do. So we uh, we have forest biologists, and they teach our students how to manage forests, what you actually do to the land and do to the trees. To uh, increase the the amount of board feet per acre that you get uh, from your forest lands. For somebody like me, my interests are um, not so much in huntable wildlife, but in um, figuring out how we can manage landscapes so that we can support populations of our rarer species, mostly of birds. Uh, and, and that's uh, that's about what we do.
0: I was reading some of your work and and some of your blog and that idea of managing the landscape is really new to me of trying to get what you need out of it, but also make sure the creatures who live there are taken care of, are getting what they need. It's, it sounds very complicated. Where do you even begin?
2: It's, it's really helpful to think about what this term we call ecosystem services. Like what do we get from nature? What do we get for free from what does nature provide for us for free? And you can break that down into these different categories. And sort of one of the obvious categories would be, what, is, what does nature provision us with? What do we actually get from nature that we use? And things like wood, or um, we get fresh water. You know, These are things that, that we take from nature. If, you are a, if you're a hunter or an angler, then you're literally taking food from nature, right? So that's one big category. Another big category is uh, like the cultural aesthetic things that we get from nature. So uh, I know you want to talk about hope and, and sort of like the emotional effect that being in nature has on a person. That's huge part of it. Mm. Um, So just aesthetic enjoyment and things like that are things that are benefits that we get from nature. So thinking about how we as managers of nature, (laughs) Uh, Because there's really nowhere you can go on this planet that isn't touched by human uh, effort or industry or thing like that. Um, Figuring out how we do that in a way that supports those ecosystem services that we get back is the key to natural resource management. Mm. And you're right, it's complicated and no one knows exactly how to do it or we'd be in much better shape than we are.
0: Well, and so much of nature is you pull out one tiny thread and things collapse that you didn't even realize were connected. You know, they're layer upon layer upon layer. My, my children love the show, The Wild Kratts, and they were watching one and yeah. they were like, they are saying it's not a food chain, it's a food web. And we talked about that, right? It's not all linear. It's this animal is connected actually to these 27 other animals in the same ecosystem.
2: Yeah. One of the things, ecology is the science that really informs what we do. So that's the science we do to try to figure out what we might apply as management. And then management is something we do like, uh, uh, oh, I don't know, use prescribed fire on this particular field. So that's a a management tool. But ecology is the science of studying things like fire and their effect on landscapes and on plants and soil and uh, biodiversity and all that kind of stuff. So that's the... It's combining the science with what we might want to do to change the outcome. And humans have been doing that for as long as there have been humans. You know, humans have, especially with fire, fire was one of the first tools that humans ever used to manipulate their landscape. And it would do things like, um, you know, control where the big herds of grazing animals would go because they love a fresh bird. So that new fresh grass, that's an attractant for them. And that's uh, something that presumably made hunting easier for hunter-gatherer society. So all, all sorts of things people have been doing for as long as there have been people.
0: There's a lot of controversy around fire in California right now. It's have we put out the fires too early and now that's why everything is burning and everyone has a different opinion. You know, many, many of them just, Citizen scientists who read an article one time online. Uh-huh. Um, but the that question about how much do we manage or overmanage the natu- the natural world and what ripple effects does that have versus, you know, well, there was a lightning strike here, so we'll just let it burn and burn through these four cities that we'll never be able <laughs> to rebuild. It's it's very, it's very complex and very controversial often.
2: Yeah, I think it frustrates my students a lot because they, of course, uh, would love to come into a class and just learn a bunch of terms. And, you know, these are the terms that are going to be on the test. And, of course, there's never any actual correct answer. Every answer is is nuanced in terms of what the downstream effects of that are. So um, I, I really try to hammer home for my students that um, that. Uh, The management begins with a decision. It's a decision for one, even to to do that management, even like when we say um, preservation or we're going to set some place aside. That's that's management. That decision to not put out that fire is management, too. Um, So all of these things come down to decisions that
0: we make. So you say you believe in nuance. How do you survive in the current political arena if you believe in nuance? No. We don't do nuance. We do yes we or no. We don't do right nuance, no. Just,
2: yeah, nuance is a, is a tough slog these days. Um, and it's, it also makes our, our science kind of difficult, too, because, um, you know, folks who might consider themselves pure scientists who actually have controls and do experimental designs, uh, they look at what we do as like, well, you don't even have a control. How can you really know? and you've yeah. got all these other factors that you're you're not accounting for and we're like yep <laughs> there's just one earth so it's an n of 1
0: yeah nature, the other nature fascinating, does what it does
2: yeah it, it does what it does the other fascinating thing is that um you know one of the you might think oh what does this thing have an effect on on this right and that's how the, the the applied science might go but the the actual interesting question is is more like At what scale does this affect this? At what spatial scale or temporal scale? Mm -hmm. Because the the yes or no question is, does this affect this? Uh, You could do it at one scale and the answer would be yes. You could do it at another scale and the answer would be no. So that you don't get anywhere. So you've really got to design your work in ecology to sort of address those different temporal and spatial scales. Uh, And that's part of the challenge and, and the cool stuff. So the answer, the answer is always yes <laughs> at some scale and also no at some other scale.
0: So you ace the test. No matter what answer you put <laughs> yeah. on there, it's at least partially true. <laughs> partially. That's great. That's that's why I was an English major because math, you get the one right answer and that's stressful. English, you write a five-page essay and you're at least a little bit right. <laughs> so tell me about how birds fit into the work that you're doing right now. What are you doing with your students? How do birds fit in
2: to wow. your work? Okay. Well, uh I'm unapologetically an ornithologist. So there are a lot of people today who will work with birds and they'll say, um, well, you know, I'm a I'm a spatial ecologist. I'm a, you know, a physiological ecologist or something like that. And my model of choice is avian or something like that. And and that's really what we have to do. We have to think more broadly about what we do these days um, to be a successful research lab, because. The the funding agencies and the funding opportunities that we apply for all the time are not so taxonomically geared. It's not like hey, we have a certain amount of money from the NSF that goes to birds. It's like we have a certain amount of money that goes to these questions that we want to explore. Um, So modern scientists have to be kind of nimble about that and sort of figure out how to, even if they do sort of love birds or love frogs or whatever it may be, figure out how to, um, how to cast what they're doing or how to use the system that they like to work with to address different questions. So the focus is on the question more than the taxon taxonomic mm-hmm. group. Um, but me, I'm a dinosaur and I'm totally okay when saying I'm, I'm studying birds cause I like birds and I'll address all kinds of different questions. If they're about birds, I like other things too, but birds are the best. Um so that
0: spark of joy is so energizing too, isn't it? You wake <laughs> up in the morning and think I get to do what I love. There's 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 energy behind that.
2: There's uh the last proposal I put in, well, actually the second to the last because I just put one in this morning, but the last proposal I put in about a month ago with a couple of colleagues was um about loggerhead strikes. Yeah. And, um, you know, the three of us got our heads together to apply for this particular proposal. And sure, we've got some cool questions to ask, but mostly we just love Shrikes because they're cool. And that's what we kept saying. It's like, oh, man, I hope we we get this grant. And the, the reason we're hopeful that we get the grant is mostly that we get to have a great excuse to go out and look for Shrikes because Shrikes are just so cool. Uh, so, yeah, that that passion is something that's never left me. And I'm delighted to see it in my colleagues, too.
0: How did you start birding? You, you wrote, uh, I I sent out a couple of questions before the podcast and you wrote that you started in the 1970s and it's always stayed with you. What was it about birding that first grabbed you?
2: I I don't, well, I just always loved animals and that predates any sort of cognizant thing, you know, that I'm aware of. Uh, I did grow up on a farm and, uh, that's something that, you know, you're closer to nature, I guess. You have the opportunity to see more things and, uh, and, and be exposed to things that way. And I'm sure that was a big part of it. But the, um, the main thing that really got me into birds specifically, because I was equal opportunity nature boy when I was a little kid. So uh, snake catching in the summer was a huge thing for us. Um, and in the winter, just like wandering through the snow, like walking through the woods and, and just seeing how the, how the forest was different when it's quieter, uh, when you're higher up because there's snowpack. Uh, so things like that, just like exploring. But I really got turned into birds when um, in 1975, uh, my dad got us the Internet. And the 1975 version of the Internet was the World Book Encyclopedia.
0: I was going to say, he was either some <laughs> sort of inventor or the story has a twist.
2: Or he got suckered into buying an encyclopedia. Um, but the, the encyclopedia was, uh, that, that's something I did as a kid too. I would just like on those snowy days, I'd just pull a volume off the shelf and I'd just be reading the encyclopedia. Uh, and I have four siblings and all four to a person thought I was nuts. Um, but uh, the things that really grabbed me, of course, are all, any information I get about dinosaurs or other animals or beef for birds had a huge spread. It was all these beautiful, um, beautiful artwork from, I think it was Arthur Singer who might have done that artwork and he also did uh, the artwork for some of our fa- more famous bird field guides. Mm. So I remember there was a page that was called like birds of farms or birds around the farm or something like that. And I recognized some of them. It's like, oh, it's that's, that's a meadowlark. I saw one of those. Uh, and then it just became sort of like a scavenger hunt for me. Like I wanted to find all the ones that were on that page illustrated on that page on our farm. And, you know, red-winged blackbird and uh, eastern meadowlark, those were easy to find. We have bobolinks nearby, and bobolinks are just so cool. Um, that's a, a more of an eastern species that you're not encountering in California. But bobolinks are really strongly migratory, for one. So they're, you know, in, in, here in the spring and summer, but then they're gone and um, and one of the cool things that they do is like the the males they're they're highly polygynous so one male will demonstrate will sort of stake out a territory and defend against the other males and try to attract females to his territory but uh they've got this incredible song and that's where their name comes from it's kind of onomatopoeic so it it isn't just like seeing this cool thing it's also hearing like bang <speaking> bang <in> bang you know like how can you not notice that And I used to look at, you know, my parents and my siblings who just like walk from point A to point B and not just be stuck, just stop dead in their tracks. Like, did you hear that? That's incredible. So I don't know why I was affected by that, but that is how it all started. Uh, And then just kind of snowballed from there and trying to find as many birds as I could. Mm. But it it was all self-taught. I didn't know anybody else who um, had any interest in birds until college.
0: Mm. It's it's amazing when that spark hits you and suddenly your eyes are opened your ears are open to this whole world that you didn't notice existed and like you said you see people just walk right by you know and I'm, I'm always grabbing my kids grabbing my husband grabbing my friends like look 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 right there in the bushes did you notice did you see it it's an acorn woodpecker you know and they're like i don't care um, oh it's such
2: a good one though
0: right and it's the sound so cool. is so recognizable. oh you can
2: see them and they're making their little granary and they're like adjusting the How they need to notice that
0: then they move their acorns i got a whole thing about acorn woodpeckers but the the joy of there's this entire world that's happening right around you that you didn't notice that suddenly this light bulb goes on and it's what else haven't I been noticing what right. else am I missing about this incredible beautiful world that I live in that's right in my backyard that's right in the park down the street that's right in the trail by my house you got it layers and- upon layers.
2: And people, you, people have those same skills, but they apply them to different things. So one of the things for, uh, for teaching ornithology, um, ornithology, of course, is a lot more than just identifying birds, but that's the main tool that you use if you're going to study ornithology. So a big part of just getting, you know, if I've got, say, 50 students in the class, how do I get them to get started as birders? Or, you know, I don't care if they're birders for the rest of their lives, but they need to have this foundation. And I try to find skills that they already have that they can put to use for birds, and they just haven't tuned in to it yet. So for example, um, we're so attuned in in this country to recognizing sports uniforms, right? And that's we know we even know the individuals by their number. Uh, and so we recognize signs and symbols and logos all the time, and that's the same skill we would apply to visually identifying birds. The other one is sound. So um, I always come up with these ancient examples, but (laughs) that don't mean anything to my students anymore. Uh, But I say, hey, when you hear, uh, you know, a Rolling Stones song and you hear Mick Jagger's voice, uh, you know, it's Mick Jagger, right? You know, his voice. And uh, and you can tell that his voice is different from Steve Perry's voice. And, and both of their voices are, are different from Alanis Morissette's voice. Right. Uh, so we do that all the time with things that we really are exposed to and we recognize. Uh, and of course, my kids can tell me the difference between as soon as they hear like, oh, no, that's Doja Cat. That's not Dua Lipa, you know, and I don't know them well enough. But I'm sure if I studied their music more, I would, you mm-hmm. know, so we have those skills and we use them. And I'm just trying to get my students to take those same skills they already have and use and get them to tune into birds. Mm. And one of the probably the best example of it was I had a student a long time ago and he he came back from spring break in Florida. And he was just so excited to tell me about the cardinal that he had seen in Fort Lauderdale. (laughs) I'm going to celebrate this. This is the first time this young man has ever noticed a cardinal. Um, and I didn't share with them that there was a cardinal that was singing above the door to the building you just walked into. Um, but that's okay. That's what we want. We want whenever it hits somebody, we want that to happen.
0: Absolutely. You want to build on the joy rather than build build on the joy. Encourage them. Down. Yeah.
2: Always punch down. Never or always punch up. Never punch down. That's uh, a good. And, and and help people. You know, keep that ladder down there for them and and bring them up.
0: Yeah, that's, that is a good word. I bet you're a phenomenal teacher. Eh. Eh. See, that's Eh. another sign of a phenomenal teacher. Eh, I'm okay. Eh. Um, So you wrote a little bit about some of the cultural meanings that different cultures Mm. ascribe to birds. And I'd love to hear some of those stories because I think many of us in the United States have a story of, oh, you know, my loved one died, but blue jays always reminded me of him. And I saw a blue jay and I felt Mm -hmm. this connection, but There are larger cultural stories in many, many countries around the world that relate to birds and the meaning of birds. Could you share a couple of those with us that have really impacted you?
2: Sure. Um, You know, one of the things I I live in Oklahoma now, I'm from New York and I'm in Oklahoma and I'm um, more much more exposed to sort of um, Native American um, and other indigenous cultural identities toward birds. And in fact, I have a I had a project with a student that we're still working to publish that. And the whole point was to say to look at the diaspora of the removal programs for indigenous folks in the in the 19th century. And can we look at like the bird communities where their original lands were? And the bird communities they're exposed to now in their tribal lands in in Oklahoma, and then actually sort of quantify that difference. And what I'm trying to get my head around on that is like, what are the cultural things that have been lost? These cultural connections that have been lost. And anybody who's any people who've been through a diaspora have done that. I mean, the whole reason that we have. Robins in North America is because the European diaspora—they re- were trying to remember the robins from back home that they were never going to see or hear again uh, in their lifetime. So anytime people have uh, move a great distance, they're they're going to be exposed to some sort of loss, maybe some discovery of some other cool things in the new place they go, but also loss of of home. Uh, certainly for me, I don't have bobolinks that breed around here, so that's something that I miss. You know.
0: I grew up in northern Wisconsin, and now I live in Southern California, and I miss those black-capped chickadees so much. Those were the birds of my childhood, and yeah.
2: hundred percent. So uh, just trying to figure that out and quantify that is is something that has uh, led me to learn a little bit more about some cultural things. So one of the first things that really struck me was, uh, I I got into reading like, well, well, why are eagles so revered? You know, what is it about? I mean, eagles are cool for sure, but there are lots of cool birds. Why eagle? And the the cultural touchstone for a lot of people, and obviously I'm overgeneralizing from a lot of different groups, but the cultural touchstone seems to be something like eagle has looked into the face of God, Mm. you know. And and then, you know, and then when I discovered that, I was like, ah, now I get how sacred that is. Mm. You know, I, I could get sort of intellectually Sure. Yeah, the you know, this particular group of people, they they think eagles are sacred, whatever that means.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, now
2: it's like, oh, well they they see there's one thing that has ever looked upon the face of God. Uh mm-hmm. and that's eagle. Okay. Well, that's a whole different level of sacred then. Now mm-hmm. I I really get it. Uh and that's how eagles then become can be messengers, uh intermediaries, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Related to that is um uh, in in the the Himalayan region, the soils are so thin <laughs> that um, it's it's difficult to bury the dead. So a really common practice in some areas is sky burial, and sky burial means that you you take your loved ones. It's it's, it's very sort of uh, orchestrated and and complicated ritual involved in this, but essentially you're taking your loved ones and bringing them to a very high place. On a stone that is basically an altar. And the idea of the sky burial is that, of course, the vultures will come and scavenge the corpse of the, the loved one. And that might sound in some ways sort of gruesome or morbid or something like that, but it's a similar thing. Vulture is the, the root of that soul of that loved one to get to heaven. Mm. And this this is something that I was uh, sort of learning about at a time a few years ago when there was just a, a horrific population crash of vultures, mm. especially in India, but also in Africa and some other places. And, and the issue is that they're really sensitive to um, uh, some medicines that we treat livestock with. And then when they scavenge those carcasses, they they die. So there was something like a 95% reduction in populations of certain vulture species um, in these areas where people would practice sky burials. So as I was explaining this to my students, um, you know, imagine that you rely on nature, something in nature, like one of the ecosystem services that you get from nature is that there are vultures around to take your soul to heaven. Mm. And if we don't have vultures, you can't get to heaven.
1: Mm.
2: Now that's that's not, you know, there. I'm I'm generally not teaching students who espouse those beliefs, but to get them to understand that there are people for whom that's what we mean by they worship this bird or this bird is really important to them, or something like that. Mm. Uh so I, I can scarcely think of anything more important than that. You know, the the you know, we might ecologically say, oh, this is a big problem that we're losing these vultures, they're nature's cleanup crew, and they're really important for keeping diseases down. Well, there are these other people who are like, our loved one can't go to heaven, because mm-hmm. we don't have vultures right now. So that's really thinking about how humans interact with wildlife, and how their whole worldview can be constructed by that is super important. If, if for nothing else than just getting to understand people a little bit better. Yeah. And, and why things might be important to them.
0: And growing in, in empathy, that ability to... And growing in it, sure. Yeah. yeah. And that's another example of the interconnectedness of ecology, that this livestock medicine, which no one ever intended to be in the digestive system of a vulture, caused this tremendous population crash. Are the vultures doing better? Have they... Done away yeah, with some the, of those meds. Uh,
2: yes, we're uh, there's there's of course a, a huge push to try to um, uh, protect them and get their numbers back, and uh, and slowly they're t- they're ticking up again. Uh, but we're talking about you know big birds of prey. They don't necessarily um, reproduce very quickly, uh, so it takes a while.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting when things start to affect those big birds of prey. I mean, we had the whole DDT thing with the eagles here in America, mm-hmm. and it's. Because they're so big, because they're so visible, even lay people start to notice, oh, something's off here in a way that if it's tiny little songbird or very quiet little bird is often not seen as quickly. And so there's a there's a benefit to being a big, visible predator.
2: (laughs) Yes, in some ways. Yeah. But in other ways, they're more they're just more vulnerable. And that's uh, and that's I guess that's the benefit to us is that we've noticed that sign a little more quickly. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting too. You bring that up. Like condors are such an incredible success story, California condor. Um, but California condors routinely um, have to be captured again in the wild, brought into medical facilities, and treated for um, for lead poisoning. And mm-hmm. that's because they're scavenging from, say, gut piles of hunter killed deer or other wildlife, and they're picking up these little lead fragments. You know, so uh, um, and and that doesn't take much to accumulate to really start to affect them. So if they, if, uh, if they can get them and get them into a rehab facility, they can treat them and get them back out into the wild. But that's mm-hmm. become a like standard practice for all those condors that are out there now. And it affects eagles, other birds of prey too.
0: The, um, the tiny amount of lead or medication or something like that getting into a right. bird system is is such an example of how these minute changes can have tremendous effect. Our One of our kids oh, yeah. had a fever a couple of weeks ago and it was just, you know, two degrees above normal, but it was, he was a different kid. And, you know, the, the tiny increases in temperature or rainfall or, you know, the condo complex that went in two miles away that, Oh, it's two miles away. Well, no, that, that matters to the great horned owl who used to nest in the, you know, and, and, I imagine part of your work is is trying to figure out how these two feet can walk together of human progress. And we need places to live, and we need wood for building, and we need water to drink. But also, if we don't protect these natural resources, they'll be gone in a generation, or they'll be gone in 20 years. So how do you make those calls? Who decides? <sighs>
2: <laughs> no one person should decide. let's let's start there. Um, but yeah, that's one of the one of the biggest problems is that there isn't necessarily a deciding body, but of course, if there was, then there would be you know real difficulties with that too. So um, we in, in sort of like wildlife management fields, uh, there's a huge emphasis on management of private lands. And that's because across the country, most of our land is in private ownership. We have, especially in the West, there's a lot more public land than in the East, but overall, it's it's mostly private land. And if you want to manage that area or protect some population of some rare species, you need to be working with those private landowners, most of whom are farming and ranching, right? That's where most of that, that land area is. So our system for like delivering conservation is very much centered on people like that, on that landowner who has, say, a thousand acres. And the idea is: well, let's uh let's work with this landowner um, and give them a tax write-off for implementing these particular practices on their land that are a little more beneficial. Uh, to the resources we're concerned about in this region, so these landowner incentive programs are a huge part of modern conservation here in, in North America, at least in the U.S. So that's something, though, that can be kind of alienating to a lot of our students, most of whom are not big landowners, right? And they're wondering, well, what can I do? You know, what role can I play? I I'm, I live in an apartment, you know, and I'm likely to for a while, right? So for them, I'm trying to get them to understand that so much of what we do is driven by our consumer choices.
1: Hmm.
2: So we have an important role to play, too. And part of it is just getting sort of tapped in to what your consumer choices are. So I used to do um, uh, an exercise with my students where they'd have to go to Walmart and uh, just randomly pick 10 items on a shelf Somewhere, And like, what country did they come from? And just to sort of get them to understand where, you know, what, what did it take for this item with palm oil grown in Indonesia to end up in your shelf in Stillwater, Oklahoma, right? And that's not to like shame people for the choices they make, but just this is our global world today. And this is the the system that we've set up. So that's what really makes a difference in, um, in sort of The way we manage lands is consumer behavior so much. Hmm. Um, A big one that always sort of shocked me was, why are we growing so much lettuce in Arizona, right? Arizona seems like an awful place to grow lettuce, but we grow a lot of lettuce in Arizona. And well, one of the reasons we grow lettuce in Arizona is that I love that crisp iceberg lettuce on my McChicken. And it's got to be the same crisp lettuce. Every McChicken sandwich I get, no matter what McDonald's I go to, Uh, so that's the kind of thing that we, um, have expected as consumers and that drives the demand. And, you know, it's far more complex than I understand or can explain. Mm. Um, but getting people to understand that they do have a role, even if they're not big landowners, Mm. one of the most fun, I guess, movements that we've seen in the past, say decade, it's been really quick is so many more people getting interested in their own little plots of land. (laughs) as uh as a little bit of rewilding even mm. if it's just a tiny oasis like just some native plants <laughs> and through the rise of um, um citizen science community science programs especially i that helps yes. people learn their plants and learn their insects and things like that i think that's been really important there have been a few studies now that have demonstrated that there really is a, a benefit to having um more sort of rewilded logs and things like that. Mm. Uh, so it's not just a feel-good thing. Like, it really does seem to matter, at least for some native biodiversity. And, and that's, you know, that's heartening mm.
1: that there and are things we do. S-
0: and some of those changes and adaptations are so easy. It's if you have a yeah. lawn, don't mow it so short. Mow it six inches or four <laughs> inches, whatever you can stand. Right, plant some native plants. Yeah, I, I spoke with a, a evolutionary biologist a couple of days ago who said the best bird feeder is a native plant. <laughs> She's like, I'm you not against it. bird feeders, but you know, grow those honeysuckle bushes or whatever it is that will attract the birds that you're interested in having oh, in yeah. your yard.
2: Hundred uh, percent. And and my yard, my lawn, I'm in a place with like uh, you know an HOA and all that, but it's. Uh, they're pretty laissez-faire about that, which is good. Uh, and I you know, I just don't mow big patches of my lawn. And I, I mow enough that it looks like I'm actually paying attention. It's not just un, totally unkempt. And, and here in Oklahoma, we have to be careful about uh, fine fuel accumulation uh, around our home. So there's a certain amount of mowing that I'm going to do every year. But then I have leave these very conspicuous patches. And of course, they're gorgeous. Uh, wildflowers pop up. Uh, paintbrush and um, and Rebecca, uh, brown eyed Susan and things like that uh, in these little patches. And I'll get compliments on that. And people say, well, what what did you do? I was Mm. like, oh, it was really difficult. I had to not cut it. I mean,
0: sometimes the laziness works in everybody's favor, you know, 100
2: percent, 100 (laughs) percent.
0: And if you don't have a yard, you can start with a window box. You know, and you can, you can start with,
2: exactly or a put planter, a couple flowers
0: or, in there. Planter on your on your little deck or right outside your front yeah. stoop, wherever it is that we can all do a little piece. And those little pieces of the natural world. You may think my tiny little window box is nothing, but those add up. Those little bits of greenery and nature yeah. make a difference.
2: They really do. Uh, I've got I've got one really like not particularly pretty patch that I'm looking at right now. That is my ragweed patch. And some people would say, "Why is this idiot growing ragweed in his lawn, in between their sniffs and their coughs from their allergic reaction to it?" Uh, but the you know ragweed has these these little seeds, and bobwhite quail love those seeds. And um, I've seen bobwhite here, and I grow ragweed every year, just in case a bobwhite needs one someday.
0: Exactly, every plant has a purpose.
2: It does. It does. So they're there. And the other thing is just leaving those patches up as, um, you know, when I'm doing little patches of uh, wildflowers or, or even native grasses that I've that I found once I stopped mowing a few, few of my patches, it's not necessarily they're providing that much food for birds. But oftentimes they're providing cover for birds. And especially when it's, uh, you know, we get some pretty intense cold fronts here with real strong northwest winds and just any amount of like windbreak is is important for them. Um, so that's, that's important too. So even if I'm just sort of spreading, you know, sunflower seed, uh, near one of those patches, they've got that cover that they can go to. Uh, so that even if they're not feeding from that patch itself, they're benefiting from it. So I do mm-hmm. a lot of that kind of stuff.
0: The messier the yard, the happier the bird. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> and I know you, you also, speaking of, of window boxes, you have a passion against, window strikes tell us what we can do to prevent those those are the saddest moments for me as a birder when you hear that noise all oh, that thud. Oh, sometimes it's at an office building right you know that bird's gonna fall six stories and oh it just what it can is, we do
2: it is bad well the good news is there are things that we can do and increasingly we're doing things that are uh you know it's a huge problem but there we are doing things we're seeing a change like we've not seen before um, so one of my colleagues here, Scott Loss, who's a real leader in this research sort of even globally uh, in sort of anthropogenic mortality of birds, including window strikes. And Scott and I have a new project that's just getting started this spring here on our campus. And we we floated this to upper level administration a few years ago. We said, you know, we could be the first Big 12 university that really makes a commitment to bird safe glass on our campus and you could almost like see the eyebrow go up. And- these <laughs> people,
0: <laughs> these bird people. Uh,
2: and, and we got a commitment and then it kind of faded away because we lost some cash during uh, the beginning of the pand- pandemic, but we, we got it back uh, and we actually have a commitment on our campus that there's, uh, we've got a student who's starting this spring to uh, to do a new study and we're going to treat some buildings with uh, window appliques which, when you're talking about big university buildings, that's a big deal.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, it's it's one thing to sort of treat a picture picture window in your house or something like that. It's another when you start looking at corporate buildings, industrial buildings, and skyscrapers and things like that. Uh, so, getting that commitment is was great, and I'm so thrilled that we're we're doing that. So, we're going to get some buildings. Uh, with the windows treated and others that we've done prior work where we know we'll be able to detect a difference if we see one and, uh, and then we'll see, you know, what that tells us for the future about, um, you know, what, how we might continue to do that we've developed a relationship with architects on our campus. So they're coming to us now and saying, Hey, we found this new type of glass. What do you think of this type of glass? And, uh, and it's tough to know. You have to really test things to figure out if they are going to be effective or not. Um, and so it's, it's, an, it's an evolving science of how to reduce collisions.
1: Mm-hmm. The other big
2: one is lighting. There's so much you could do with lighting because most, most birds get in trouble um, w- when it's low light conditions. Uh, like just before dawn or right around dawn, um, when they're sort of coming in after an evening of migration and they're looking for a place to put down for the day to, to you know, get out of the way of predators and, and maybe find some food. So they're moving around in unfamiliar environments. They get confused both by reflection, uh, especially if there's um, you know, vegetation that's reflected in a window, but the other thing that's really confusing is a pass-through effect. So if there's a window and through the building is a window on the other side and it looks clear to them, uh, that's really difficult for them. And then the other thing is lighting. So lights, especially from the inside of a building, can just be really confusing. It just creates this, we think, illusion to them that it looks like a safe space they can go into. Of course, it's not. So uh, for the big skyscrapers, it's more like turning the inside lights off.
0: Mm. Which we should do anyway, really.
2: <laughs> Ideally, yeah. Um, and then uh, and there are you know, citywide programs to do that now. So Toronto has one. Dallas-Fort Worth has one. Um, so even entire cities are, are, New York City is working on it, I think, too. Um, mm. So we're seeing things that we've never seen before in terms of addressing the problem, but still such a huge problem. Mm. And one of the reasons it's such a big problem is that if you can think back to almost any old-timey wildlife show uh, where there's a predator and prey, and uh, which, which animal becomes the prey? It's always the sick, the old, the young, right? Well, with window collisions and birds, most of them, like mo- the highest numbers are, are migrants, and they're in the process of migrating. And the more we learn about, especially small uh, land birds, like it's only the ones that are in perfect health that are migrating, if a bird is uh sort of not in good condition, if it's sickly or even if it just doesn't have enough like fat laid down, it's more likely to stay put and not be migrating. So uh windows are like indiscriminately taking out the most successful individuals mm. in the population. And um it, it it's an enormous hit. And when when people sort of scoff at the numbers because they're they're astronomical, like what does it really mean that a billion individuals in the US are hitting windows uh, every year. Um, well, you, you can match that up with what we know about bird populations over time. So over the past 50 years, we think we've lost in total close to 3 billion birds, meaning just like if you took all the species of birds in North America and you put them in a really big pot, <laughs> uh, there would have been 3 billion more individuals in the pot in wow. 1970 than there are today. Mm. Um, so that just loss of abundance is a is a huge deal. And there are just many, many indicators, not just for birds either, but of other wildlife species where just the they're still here. They're not extinct mm. yet, but mm. the abundance is just a tiny fraction of what it used to be, even in the span of a single human lifetime. Mm. Um, so all of these things point to, you know, that we should be doing things a little bit differently, maybe.
0: Yeah. What What advice do you give people for their own p- picture window at their house? What should they do? Decals? Uh,
2: so um, there are some great resources. Um, one of the best sources for that is American Bird Conservancy, ABC. Perfect. Uh, yeah. They I'll, put, do a, I'll
0: link to that in the show notes.
2: Thanks. They do a great job of just putting together good information um, on the effective window treatments. And there are a lot of things you can do, but but like the the old timey decals like the 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 falcon silhouette that stuff doesn't work. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't so really want
0: to look at a falcon silhouette out my window. I want to look at a falcon, <laughs> actual falcon. So I don't have to do that. <laughs>
2: just get a falcon and just tack it actual up there.
0: Actual falcon.
2: Yeah, the the key seems it has to be something that's going to break up the outline and be noticed by the birds and so they have some sort of clue that this is a solid barrier. <laughs> And one of the, the one of the products that we're using and I'm not intentionally endorsing, although we our preliminary work seems like this product is great, comes from this company called uh Feather Friendly. Mm. And it ends up being a series of like little dots that, on, that are applied on these strips that go on the outside of the window. And if you apply those and they're um close enough together, and I think the going um recommendations these days is no more than two inches apart. Mm. Uh, then that seems to be fairly effective at reducing um, collisions or, or increasing the, the ability of birds to notice that this is a solid barrier mm. and to avoid it that way. So if it's, if they're too wide, then that's just going to be perceived by birds as like little saplings. And that's the sort of thing they fly through all the time. Right. So you've got to be narrow enough uh, to keep those little birds to get them to recognize it. Mm. And um that's the product that we're using on our campus for our new study that's coming up is a, a feather friendly product. And of course, when you, we humans, we barely notice it. Right. So you have to be right up close to it to see it uh, for us, but for the birds, it's um, it is a lot more noticeable. Mm. And some of them could be, you know, UV treated and birds see a little bit more in the UV spectrum than we do. So it maybe shows up a little bit more. That's another part of it, what is there's a lot of research going into just sensory abilities of birds Right And how their vision really differs from ours. So if we can find like a, the, the silver bullet, of course, would be, what's something we could put on the outside of this window that every bird will see, but no human will
0: see. Yeah. If only birds were a monolith. If only owls yeah. and passerines all saw the same thing, right? Because that's a piece of it too, is how do you get that full spectrum of birds? But something is better Correct. than nothing.
2: Something is better than nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the good news is there are products today that will that will work to, to greatly reduce um, those, those birds hitting your window. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's going to happen. I just took the dog out about an hour ago and she immediately went for the bushes and she spooked a a junco from the bush. And I watched this junco actually bump into the brick wall, (laughs) right? So sometimes the he flew away, seemed to be okay. But, uh, sometimes it's just going to happen no matter how well you've treated your window. But if you've got a window where you've noticed Uh, you know, some some birds over time. Even if it's just like one a year, it's probably a problematic window. Mm. That's a great idea to treat that. Um, And then you'll have fewer birds dying at your window, which is probably why you have, probably uh, that would be incongruent with why you have birds there, which is you're probably feeding birds because you want birds around.
0: And you want them alive.
2: You want them alive. By the same token, don't have your cat outside if Mm. you're feeding birds because then you're really just feeding a cat.
0: Yeah keep the cats indoors.
2: Cats indoors.
0: So you are a member of the Wilson Ornithological Society? I mean yeah, ornithological sure. always trips me up. Ornithological. Tell me about <laughs> the benefits of being part of a, a birding society and tell me a little bit about Wilson.
2: Sure. Um Wilson the guy or Wilson the society?
0: Our middle child's name is Wilson. So tell me about him. He's oh, a great guy. After Wilson? Or just <laughs> randomly family name.
2: Okay, good, good. good. Um yeah, so societies, there, there are a lot of, I mentioned ABC, American Bird Conservancy. There are plenty of societies that uh, interested people can join and support and derive benefits from that. ABC will give you a really nice magazine that comes, you know, and you'll learn about birds, you'll learn about conservation. And they're one of all, a whole great number of a proliferation of, of amazing resources for people who are interested in birds uh, Bird Watchers Digest, Audubon. Uh, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, American Birding Association. So all of those are are great uh, for helping people learn more about birds, appreciate birds in their their comings and goings. Uh, And there's a conservation message that's being delivered, which I think is terrific. The um, societies like the, the Wilson Ornithological Society are something a little bit different. And that is, that's where the science of ornithology is being done, And specifically being published, so um, there are a number of different ornithological societies, just like there are different societies that publish on all sorts of things: ecological society, herpetological (laughs) society, uh, forest ecology society. So all sorts of different scientific groups have coalesced down through the years to form societies. And a society usually says, "All right, we're going to form a society. We're going to publish a journal, and in this journal, this is where the peer-reviewed science is going to get." published so for things like um ornithological societies most of that was happening in the 19th century so it was on the heels of this very sort of victorian style uh, going to a place collecting birds and other things um and then stuffing those things and making them a specimen in a museum and that sort of thing um, and so that's what a lot of early sort of organized ornithology was about and From that, we've got a a number of different ornithological societies in the U.S. that have been publishing since the 19th century and and still are. So the biggest among those is the American Ornithological Society, the AOS. Um, And they're a couple years older than than we are. Wilson Ornithological Society started in, I think, 1888 and started in Chicago. And the group then, the, the, the sort of niche they saw themselves having was that egg collecting was a hugely important thing, mm. uh, a really important hobby back then. It's before TikTok, right? So people had to do something. So they went and raided bird nests and collected the eggs. Uh, so there was a like an oologists group that uh, began and they, they were the nascent society from which we sprang. Uh, we took our name, ultimately, the Wilson Ornithological Society from Alexander Wilson, Alexander Wilson was a Scottish immigrant uh, who worked at the Academy in Philadelphia. And he was like the first one, he's credited as being the first one to really sort of put together um, in writing some studies of birds from the field. Hmm. And he uh, he ended up publishing, I think it's a nine volume uh, tome of, of his wanderings throughout the, the mostly the eastern U.S., studying birds. So not just collecting, but uh you know describing habitat and life history and, and things like that. So um from that history, um Wilson is in some circles called the father of American ornithology, which is a silly kind of title and he'd probably shy away from it too. Um, but that's why almost a hundred years later, this society was coming, trying to come up with the names, like, oh, let's name ourselves after Wilson. Uh, around the same time, of course, the Audubon societies were born, and uh, they took for their name this guy Audubon, who traveled all around and painted a bunch of birds. These days, we're a lot more sensitive to naming things after people, and a lot of us think we should not do that, um, and let's just name things for, for what they are and stop trying to honor people. Uh, from from the past in that way. They're, they're already a part of the historical record. They don't need to be, have societies named after them, but be that as mm-hmm. it may. So what does a society do? Uh, publish a journal, right? So that's if you've got pu- peer reviewed science to be published, it's gonna go in, in uh, one of those journals. The other thing is an annual meeting.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Annual meetings are hugely important um, for sort of practicing scientists. In part, because it's uh, well for a lot of different things, but a, a big one is just networking with other people you don't know and reconnecting with people you do know. But the thing that always drew me to scientific conferences was I could there's there's no way that any one scientist can keep track of the literature that's coming out at the rate it does. Uh, so the old expression drinking from a fire hose. That's what it's like, Um but I could go to an annual meeting of a particular society. I could pick different uh, sessions that I want to sit in on and, and listen to those talks. And in a couple of days, I could get myself up to speed again mm-hmm. on the sort of um, the, the things that are happening at the forefront of the science that we do, um, that I would never have a chance to be able to read all those papers in, in my own time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are the main reasons that, that the things that drew me to societies. I kept going back to Wilson meetings, though, year after year. And one of the reasons was there's was a little bit of a smaller society.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: our meetings are like maybe 200 people instead of, say, a thousand people. And though I might see more old friends when the thousand people gather, I've got a much better chance to actually talk to people in the 200 person meeting. And uh, and that's why I kept going back. Um So I did. And eventually I got, uh, you know, sort of drawn in, asked if I wanted to participate a little bit more and then fast forward. And today I'm the president Um, today. We're we're morphing and all the societies are to try to be more responsive to uh, the needs of ornithologists. Like, how do we support ornithologists, especially young people trying to get established in our science? Mm
1: -hmm. Because
2: a lot of people are going to be scientists and ornithologists, Uh, But they might not necessarily be publishing. Yeah. Or that might not be the main thing that they do. So for some people today, the the journal is less important. And other things might be. So what are some other things? Well, One is that we might support research. So the Wilson Ornithological Society provides a tremendous amount of money just to support research as, as grants. So we have a big grants program. Another one is Mentoring. Like how do we um, actually formalize mentoring and take someone who's sort of established and help them bring someone up uh, who's trying to get established. And to do that um, and actually put resources behind it is super important. So for our mentorship programs, there's money. It's like, we want you to come to the meeting. We want the mentor and the mentee to come to our meeting and take part and travel's expensive. And meetings are expensive these days. So we're paying for that, right? So um, those are ways that we're, um, you know, moving forward with trying to support people trying to get established in ornithology and and people who are already currently established too. So research grants, mentoring. uh, We have a partnership that's coming up, which I'm thrilled to announce with uh, the group Field Inclusive. That'll start Mm -hmm. this year. Mm -hmm. And uh, that'll be some sponsorships, uh, you know, providing the money for the sponsorships they offer specifically to help um, BIPOC individuals get more involved in the field, um, whether it's ornithology or, you know, something else, ecology. Mm -hmm. Um, So all of those are important ways that we as a society can sort of marshal our resources uh, to help support people who are coming up Uh, for students. Of course, it's student travel money. We want you students at our meetings. You're the ones who are going to be giving most of the talks, um, so we know meetings are difficult to get to. So we're going to pay you. We're going to offset a huge amount of that cost to get you to our meetings. Um, and, and and that's, I mean, it's, it's doing the work that I'm doing is all volunteer. And of course, it's a lot of work.
0: You don't get a presidential salary?
2: amazingly no you get a free
0: t-shirt or anything tim no i pay for that stuff too (laughs) Oh man (laughs)
2: yeah i know drives my wife crazy she's always like are you
0: ever gonna get this money back from this travel it's a labor
2: Um, of
1: love yeah
2: but it's incredibly rewarding yeah and and you know being able to see people sort of from as birders from the moment they sort of turn on to listening to the world uh, and then also being there for young scientists who've like, taken that next extra leap and say, oh, I, I think I want to be an ornithologist. And then being there for them when they give their first talk or when they attend their first meeting or something like that, um, and just watching this this growth in people is tremendous. Mm. It's fantastic. So it's so rewarding beyond dollars and cents. Mm.
0: There's There's pay and then there's pay.
2: There's pay and then there's pay. You got it.
0: So you've already partially answered this question, but where are you finding hope these days?
2: Uh, I'm I'm told that hope has feathers. Uh, I've, I've heard that written. Um, one of the places to find hope, of course, is in in young people because, uh, and that sounds so cliche, jeez, uh, but it's it's true because every day I meet people who are they don't have to be sort of just like I was. I had this really weird upbringing. That they don't have. Most of them are suburban. They really haven't been exposed to nature. Uh, but seeing how excited they are when they do recognize something for the first time um, is tremendously hopeful. The fact that we've got so many more people today paying attention—not just to birds, but to uh, to insects and uh, flowers and uh, and carbon—you <laughs> know—is uh, is is hopeful to me. So um, you can imagine that in the kind of work that I do and the kind of teaching that I do, that there's a lot of room for doom and gloom. Yeah. You know, and I don't sugarcoat that kind of stuff for my students. We actually do have a whole bunch of species that have gone extinct. And we do have a whole bunch more that are like functionally extinct where their, their numbers are just so low. They they might as well be extinct in terms of their ecological uh, effect on the rest of the environment so there's there's a lot of bad news right um so we look for the good news we look for the good news and then lean into that as best we can
1: hmm.
2: so there's a tremendous resource um called conservation evidence it's a website hmm. and also a really sort of a applied journal a guy named uh bill sutherland runs it as far as i know uh and the idea there is they specifically on that website and through their journal look for things that people have done in conservation and then evaluated that practice and it's they're like little mini reviews like did this work or did it not right so something like um let's say you're interested in putting little runways under the road so frogs and salamanders can travel back and forth without getting squashed in the road so they've got a section on that and you there's all these different papers written about people that did that in this environment or this environment and what the results were. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, right there you're seeing, um, well, did this work or did this not? Mm. Um, so that's a great resource to sort of counteract the bad news stuff for our students to sort of show them like this stuff that's really working. And, uh, this is something that you can learn how to do. Another one is, um, we have an Instagram account because I'm down with the kids. They don't even use Instagram anymore. You're um, hip. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm hip, I'm cool. The uh, The Instagram account that I have for one of my courses uh, focuses specifically on this. And that is we go to the IUCN red list. So the International uh, Union of Conservation of Nature, their red list of threatened species. And you can search that list For a bunch of different criteria. And what I do uh, in this particular exercise is we search for things that are, you know, vulnerable or threatened or critically endangered or whatever. Those are the bad categories. But though that group that's also got a population that's increasing. So it's this really weird sort of slice Mm. of things that are rare, but they're actually getting better Mm. right now. And, um, and that list is probably about 200 species long. So there's quite a few. And, and then the, the key is, well, let's figure out what is changing the fortunes of the species for the better. Why is their population now increasing after they got so rare? What are people doing? Hmm. Uh, and then we look for commonalities in that in the class and the students sort of pick a species and then learn more about it and then sort of share with the class uh, what is worth and some great examples are um, there are so many island species that are super rare and it's things like um, uh, like through the Caribbean there's like a different rock iguana on a lot of different islands and a lot of those are super rare but there's a lot of activity toward bringing them back and one of the things that's really helpful is just sort of head-starting them, right? So if you, um, it's it's not just the captive breeding itself, but it's getting those little little baby ones and giving them a couple of years to grow up, mm-hmm. uh, protected from cats and rats and automobiles and things like that. Uh, and then they get either get big enough that they can escape, or they're just fast enough that mm-hmm. they're a lot less likely to be taken. And then you get those back out in the population and it augments the population, and mm-hmm. the, the trajectory changes. Um so when you see things like that it's like oh that worked for this species that worked for this species that worked for this species right like okay now you have a practice in mind
1: mm.
2: that's something that we can actually do that works to reverse the fortunes of these species mm. um and then patience you know i was somebody who when i was an undergrad i thought i knew a bunch of stuff and was you know grown up enough and objective enough to say look i love california condors Someday I hope to see a California condor. I'm not. They're going to go extinct. We should be using this money to save all these other things. Right. Uh, What a fool I was. Right. Uh, Because if I had just sort of cooled my jets for about 30 years, Hmm. there were really passionate, talented people working with those condors And when they made that decision in 1987 or whenever it was to bring all the remaining wild ones into captivity and and really start this captive breeding program, they knew it was going to be a long slog. Uh, They knew it wasn't any guarantee. Uh, But fast forward today and I'm talking to my students and there are California condors free flying in Arizona, in California, in Utah, you know, Mm. and that's certainly not anything I ever thought I'd see. Mm. Uh, So I, I now have the benefit of looking back and being shocked at all the positive stories the success stories that we have out there yeah uh, the world is in so in some ways so much better mm. than the one I grew up in when the Cuyahoga River was spontaneously catching fire when every building you walked into reeked of cigarette smoke yeah you know, when our cars were poisoning us with lead <laughs> driving down the street so Um, that sort of amnesia about the positive things matters too.
0: Mm. That's a good word. The connection between patience and hope and remembering the history and the trajectory of things. That's a good word.
2: Yeah. You you, you, uh, wish you could impart it to someone in the moment. Yeah. You you can't, they have to live it themselves. That's so
0: frustrating. It's so frustrating that you have to, we all have to kind of find our own path and make our own mistakes. Hard as, a, hard as a professor and hard as a parent. Both yeah, I think things. you're right. I think you're right. Dr. Tim, thank you <laughs> so much for the gift of your time and your wisdom. It has been such a joy to be with you today.
2: You too. I really appreciated it.
0: The Thing with Feathers is produced by me, Courtney Ellis. Many thanks to Del Belcher for the music to Todd Peterson for the name inspiration, and to Emily Dickinson for the beautiful poem and for being in the public domain. Until next time, my friends, keep looking up. What is it on your soul? Is it that...